This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Establishing a new brand in any industry is a big ask, and the decision to openly push back against existing norms takes courage. This is especially true in the beauty industry, which is dominated by the many well-established major players. My guest today is a woman who has taken on this challenge, rewriting the rules of the beauty industry and demanding companies to do better, especially when it comes to walking the talk on inclusivity. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Sharon Shooter, the founder and CEO of Omar Beauty, a cosmetics company that is truly making waves. Born in Nigeria, Sharon developed an entrepreneurial spirit from a young age and spent time in the corporate world before taking the leap to start her own business. In this conversation, Sharon shares more about her personal journey, the decades she spent living in Australia, and the value of role models and the courage they provide when we can see what we can be. Sharon, welcome to the Women's Agenda Leadership Lessons podcast. It is so exciting to have you here today. You've offered generously to do the acknowledgement of countries, so I'm going to hand over to you. Absolutely. I would love to start by acknowledging the true owners of both the land to which I'm standing on today, which is Native American land, and of course, my adopted country, Australia, uh, who are the Aboriginals. And I also want to um, thank the contribution of all elders past and present to the development of this beautiful land. Thank you. Thank you. That's lovely. I love it when our guests do an acknowledgement of country. And in this case, it's so special because, of course, you're not in Australia, you're in America. But you used to live here for a long time. so Exactly. I'm actually an Australian citizen and that's why I call it my adopted home country uh, because I'm originally Nigerian and then I spent my adult life in Australia and naturalized as an Australian. So I'm both Nigerian and Australian and, and even coming to America as well. It's been really good. And also interesting, like seeing the similarities of what happened to Aboriginals in Australia and also to the Native Americans here. And so it's, as everybody knows, matters that it's so dear to my heart. And, and that's why I'm excited you gave me the opportunity to do that acknowledgement. So thank you for that. No, it's great. Thank you. Now, there's so much of your story that I want to talk about today. Let's start at the beginning. I don't want to re-talk about it, but you, when you were a teenager, you got the rights to distribute Revlon in Nigeria, which is an amazing story in itself. Maybe you could give the listeners kind of a short version of how that happened, how that came about. But then also you said you learned a lot from that experience because after a year of doing it, you told them you weren't the right person and you stopped doing it. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because this podcast is all about leadership lessons and it sounds like you got your first very early on. Yes, no, absolutely. You know, for me, my whole life has been one of spontaneity, right? Um, it's always when everybody thinks I'm going left, the ends up going right, right? And, um, you know, my earlier years, I was an academic, you know, I was the, one of the quote unquote gifted kids in school, um, but also I was extremely artistic and creative, right? And so I did a lot of science class, doing all the good stuff there. And outside school, all my extracurricular activity was singing, dancing, acting and all of that. And so for me, um, that was actually what happened. When I got to university, I decided to drop out of school because I was done just being this academic girl. I decided to go pursue music full-time and then realized music does not pay the bills until you're Beyonce. 
and had to find a, a real job, a daytime job to do to subsidize my music endeavor, which obviously was a career that I knew could blossom, but today you got to pay the rent. And so I stumbled in this and decided, hey, how about bring Revlon to Nigeria? Um, and it was crazy. It wasn't actually a goal of go bring Revlon to Nigeria. He was trying to find something to do. And it was, I want to bring a beauty brand to Nigeria. And at the time, Revlon were the only ones who responded and wanted to do it. And I'm like, let's do it. But I was also very young, right? I was a teenager at the time. Um, a lot of things I got through the line just by sheer grit and just not knowing better, right? The naivety is always a gift um, because you could walk into a regulatory office and just ask the questions Then when you know better, you know, you shouldn't ask that, right? It's the lack of fear. And, and that got me that far to get that agreement. But at the same time, when I got the agreement, it allowed me really, one of the things I do is I'm very realistic, right? It's one of the, my pet peeves with people in that, you know, it's even like even when people get a job, they go and apply for a job they have no business applying for. They know they cannot do, but they want the title and they want the money. I was almost in that same position where I could be a business owner, found, brought in Revlon, la, la, la. But I had to sit back and go, it takes a lot more to make this successful than I can actually do. So I have two options in front of me. I can do the whole fake it till you make it and wing it, or I could take a step back to take a step forward and truly learn it properly. Because in this, one of the gifts I got, I realized I do love this. I do love beauty as an industry. Beauty truly became an option for me where it wasn't before it was academia or um, entertainment. And I finally found a home where I could be creative. I could be academic. And then in bringing Revlon, I realized I had a hustle. So I'm like, yo, I can combine these three things together, creativity, academia, and a hustle. Um, but it was not the right time. And I think it was that courage because everybody around me thought you're crazy you brought it this far just trust in yourself and I was like I could trust in myself or I could go out go learn go play with other people's money and then come back stronger better wiser and take a leap back into the entrepreneurial scene which is essentially what happened in the end even though I could not have predicted it would go exactly this way well and there's a lot that happened in between so I want to touch on that first before we come and talk about what you did to set up your own beauty brand you talked about being a child in Nigeria, and I think a lot of our listeners will identify with this because, as you know, Australia is a melting pot and we have people from all different countries here. You said in one of your interviews that you weren't considered beautiful, which shocks me because I look at you and I see an incredibly beautiful woman. Um, you weren't considered smart and yet you were academic and you were made to conform. And because you didn't conform, you were considered on the outer, but that that was a gift because it led to a lot of benefits for you. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, any kid who is different will relate to this. And that's why I do what I do so public and vocally, right? Because our whole system of raising kids and everything we do is around conformity. If you think about it, to be the popular kid in high school, you're the one who conformed the most, right? If you can meet the standard to be considered smart in school, these were the academic parameters. And if you're good at that, then you're smart, right? Richard Branson was considered literally unteachable in school and ended up being one of the most successful entrepreneurs. Ben Carson, Ben Carson, who was, ended up being a neurosurgeon, right, was considered not intelligent in school. And he ended up becoming a neurosurgeon. So I think that was more a symptom of 
three things. Like in terms of, I joke about it ago, you know, I got to university at 15 and overseas, everybody goes, wow, that's extraordinary. I'm like, you haven't met Nigerian kids. Like in Nigeria, it's like your average, right? I had cousins who were building helicopters at the age of 13, right? So it is just a country with very, very high bars um, in terms of what, especially around academic success. And you can see that around the world in terms of the academic achievement of, of Nigerian kids, because our parents are very much like, yeah, you're going to study, study again and study even more. And when you're not studying, why are you not studying? Go study some more kind of thing. So they have a, you know, my parents, I could come back home and I had 14 A's and one B. And the only comment to be, you got to be, that's that part of not really feeling like, you know, you're the smartest kid because it's like, well, technically you're smart for you. But even compared to my cousins, I was not the intelligent one in the family in that, in that regard. So Sharon, is that because education is seen as a pathway out of poverty and into a successful life or why is that? No, I think obviously there's a lot of value for education, right? Uh, because it gives you stability, like everywhere else, right? It's a it's a country where you know you have this wide disparity between the wealthy and the poor, right? You have the most wealthy people you've ever seen in Nigeria. It's crazy, right? The, the richest black man in the world is Nigerian, so it's a kind of a real entrepreneurial kind of country. But there is a huge disparity between the wealthy and the poor, and those are the images that get fed to the West. Only that side of oh, extreme poverty, but there is extreme wealth in the country and no real middle class, very similar to what happened to China a while back, like decades ago, they had no middle class. The explosion of China has been this emergence of a middle class. And that's where Nigeria still is, where you have very rich and then you have people who are living below that poverty line. And what needs to happen now or what is happening now is that emergence of a mass middle class that are not necessarily rich or not necessarily poor. And that's why academics become really important because any job you're looking for in the country, even if you want to work at McDonald's, you require a degree. So a degree is a precursor to even going to serve somebody a beverage. So just having a degree is not enough. You have to be spectacular because you, I joke with people, when I wrote my entry to get into university, there was only 70,000 places available and almost 10 million people writing that exam. So being good, <laughs> so you, you can now see that already only 1% can even get in. So only the best of the best gets to go anywhere. And that's why even the education system is tough. That's why when Nigerian kids go overseas, they blitz everything because I was joking people, I didn't even get to use a calculator. You weren't allowed to because it was lazy. Um, you had to do math on your head and you got what was called a four-figure table. Um, it's better now. I mean, they're allowing people like be a bit more relaxed now. This, this new generation, we look at them and go like, oh, you look kids. Yeah, I mean, like, so <laughs> we were in the Google generation. We had to go read books from libraries. That's how we were studying back then. So that's really that part in terms of the bar to succeed. It's very high because of the gap, because you're either part of the haves or the haves not. And there is nothing in between where, you know, in every society is a bell curve. Most people are in the middle, right? When you have no middle and you only have here or here, you're living in extremes, which means to not be here, you have to be doing what the extraordinary are doing, right? Right now, here you have the Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Here, that's all, all you can be. You're either Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, or you're poor. That's it. So, so that's what is that. So you felt on the outer of all of that then, clearly. Exactly. I think for me, because like I say, like I was an extremely gifted kid, but that just made me average, right? In terms of the people now in the selection pool, they could go out and do something with yourself. But on top of that, you know, being for me, I'm female, I'm extremely outspoken. You know, for us in Nigeria, people don't realize this a lot. We were colonized for 400 years. 
So um, a lot of beliefs and values are not ours. So whereas in our original beliefs and values, we had no reason for feminism because everybody was equal. That was our original values. Over years, 400 years of these other values coming in, it created this unnatural ecosystem that created a patriarchy. Right. Africa had the most number of queens like who were kings. Right. And then that changed during the colonial times because Christianity came in and brought in the man as the head of the household. And so right now we're still reeling from it where you're in a society. And that's why you have Chimamanda Dechir who wrote that beautiful book, Why We Should All Be Feminists, that went viral and global. Right. Because it's a huge issue back home where now we've had this culture of a patriarchy and you can't get out of it. And so when you're born and you're like me and, you know, your ancestors' blood is flowing in your vein and you're outspoken, you're this strong warrior woman, it's like, oh, no, no, no. We know your breed. We, we removed you hundreds of years ago. You're out, you know. So it's very tough because as a woman, of course, you're built to get married and find a good husband. So when you're a woman who's talking about going to school, doing all these amazing things, being opinionated, challenging men, of course you're going to get beat up. <laughs> of course you're going to get ostracized. And then in terms of standard of beauty, just like with everywhere in the world, standards changed. And in Nigeria, a beautiful woman was plump, quite big. That was a beautiful woman. You had to be really big, which is the opposite of the West. You had to be really big. You had to be really tall. Um, so there was no room to be a petite, beautiful woman. Beauty, the standard was a big, tall woman who was also very light-skinned. Seven out of 10 women in Nigeria bleached their skin, like very similar to India, right? So that's the standard of beauty. As you can see, I'm neither. I'm neither light-skinned, neither am I tall. I'm, I stand at a very, very humble five foot three. Um, neither am I plump. I was always born like a stick. So growing up, I didn't feel beautiful. It was your eyes are too big, your cheekbones are too high, your lips are too big. And so at some point it got trendy, but uh, it was not trendy back then. It's interesting, isn't it? So many of us grew up with experiences like that. And those things that you hear when you are a child, they are in your head all the time. You become what you hear that you are. It's very hard to work against that. How do you, just to divert for a second, how do you deal with those voices in your head? Like on this podcast, we've been trying to normalise our own behaviours around anxiety and depression and mental health issues because we all suffer with those different things at different times. When you get voices in your head telling you you can't do it, how do you deal with that? Look, um, I mean, it's very natural to have self-doubt. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't have self-doubt. And my mantra is just keep walking. That's what I do. Um, it comes in, it tells me you can't do this or you're going to fail or why are you doing this? You know, because sometimes I joke about it going like, you know, when you live this kind of life and you're always doing things and trying new things, you're also always exposing yourself to failure and humiliation. Right. So it's very natural. Like uh, the, every time before I launch a thing the night before, it's like, why do you do this? You're going to tomorrow is that day. Oh, you're going to be humiliated on a global scale. Oh, my God. Everybody's going to laugh at you now because also the bigger you get, the higher up you are to be humiliated even more. So it gets harder and harder. It doesn't even get easier. The first thing you do is the easiest thing because you have nowhere to fall. Right. It's like you're already down there. You're like, who cares? Um, and, and that's when that self-doubt really comes in and comes to play. And, you know, your mind starts to remind you of all the things that didn't go right and that you've done in the past or whatever. And so for me, I just push through because I always tell people the thing you have to be mindful of is emotions are present, but they're only as real as you want to make them, right? Um, they're there, they're fleeting thoughts, they're things that flash in our head, but they only become real when we make them real. It's like fear, right? I used to be afraid of heights. I still am. But there's two reactions I can have. I could be standing on somewhere and then freak out and that's actually where I'm going to fall. 
or I can stand in that moment and go, no, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling. And there is a handrail here and a glass between me and this thing. So guess what? I cannot fall. Ergo, I'm not going to run away from this platform no matter how I feel. And within 10 minutes, you're good again. That's how I handle everything. That's how I handle those voices of self-doubt. I go, you're not real, right? The only thing that's real is what I make real. And to be honest, most of the time it's, you're not real and I don't care, right? I don't care if it works, if it doesn't work. Yes, it's not nice to do things that fail, but it's another chapter and another page in the book of this life that I've been thrown into. I love that. Practical tips for that, I think, are really helpful for all of us. So after Nigeria, you ended up in Australia. You lived here for quite a while. Tell us, you talk about Australia as your second home, but Australia is also not easy for people from outside. So how was that? Did you feel like an insight? You're an Australian citizen, but how was that at the beginning? Well, look, it was a rude shock to my system because one of the things with Australians, Australians have their own way of living and are not as connected to the nuances that the world is huge. And and there are so many different ways of living. Um, Even though it's not deliberate, extremely unwelcoming of anything that's different to the idea that they've known, right? Um, And also extremely naive to the nuances of how other people feel. So when I first came to Australia, I went into a depression for a good year. That's the truth, because I was told that every time you're weird and it's just thing people just say and just think it's OK, you know, um, ask you really silly. How come you can speak English? Is your skin going to peel off? Oh, you weren't. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, you were in Perth, right? I was in Perth. That's why I actually left Perth and moved to Melbourne, because I was like, OK, if I stay in Perth, I'm going to lose my mind because people and everybody just saw you as this girl from the third world who's here to be saved. You know, I remember people will make comments to me all the time. I, at the time, was married to an Australian and that made it even more difficult because he was an Australian with all Australian friends who really were not really aware of the world or anything. So I remember being in the house and I was using a vacuum cleaner and I was asking, I was like, how does this thing work? Right. And so here's the tea. The reason I don't know how a vacuum cleaner works is that in Nigeria, you have so many domestic stuff, you don't even know what to do with it, right? So I never iron my clothes or fix the light bulb or driven a car because somebody drives me everywhere. Somebody, All I know is light bulb's out and it gets fixed, right? Um, so I come in here and for the first time, I'm having to do my own stuff, which I did in mine. I'm like, oh, great, new life. Let me learn how to iron without burning my shirt and all this kind of cool stuff. And, you know, I'm going like, how does this thing work? And the condescension to, oh, I forgot you guys don't have this where you come from. Taking the time to say that first, you know, even if you thought that, you don't need to say that out loud, you know, to tell the person first, you're from a garbage place, wherever this place is. And so it was very confronting. I remember going to a concert. Um, it was a Box Bunny at the Symphony with the West Australian Symphony Orchestra. And we come out of this concert, you know, with my ex-husband and his friends and everything. And this woman took the time out to reach out to my hand and hold me and said to me, that would have been a very confusing experience for you. And I'm like, "Mm, why? She was like, so let me explain to you. That guy on the screen, that was Bucks Bunny. And I said to her, I know who Bucks Bunny (laughs) is. And she says to me, oh, how come you don't have TV back home? Um, Just blatant and blase. I'm looking at this woman and literally I ended up almost like putting her in a headlock because at that point I was over it. Um, I was over the snarky comments all day long, you know. So so I think coming to Australia was a rude shock. Um, it's a rude shock to anybody anyway because language is different. 
I know tongues mean something different in Australia than it means elsewhere. Uh, you know, all those little nuances. So language is different. Culture is different. Lifestyle is different. And that's why a lot of people of color who come to Australia don't stay. Like a lot of the people who came in at the time I came in, none of them stayed. They left. They were like, I can't do this anymore. And that's why Australia has a reputation for being extremely racist. But why I stayed was that I realized that people weren't deliberately racist. And that's the difference. They were just ignorant. In the intent of it, that person is not thinking that I want to be malicious to you. It's just more about about, it's an island. It's isolated. So when you say Nigeria, people are looking at you like, where? So I had to always just say Africa because that was as close as anybody knew what that was. Um, so it's a very different thing. And so for me, at first, you know, you go through that depression and whatever. And then I came out on the other end going, okay, let's do this. You know, let me. And it took me, to be honest, the only way I fit in in Australia was assimilating to a point of, which is where I now had to do a full circle because I realized the only way I was going to make it in this society was changing to become what they needed me to be. And the second I did that, I had no problems anymore. My accent was gone. I changed my name into something they could pronounce. You know, I became as Australian as you could be and I had no problems anymore. I became one of the group. Um, so that was one of what I learned in terms of survival in Australia at the point in time that I was there. I mean, now things are moving forward again. Um, was really dependent on how much you can assimilate into the Australian life. Now, having said that, the Australian way of life is not bad at all. I really enjoyed assimilating into the Australian way of life. You know, the it's casual. Like I always tell everybody out here, I'm like, you know, going to Australia was a blessing for me in a way, like remove the hardship that I faced. But getting that upbringing from Nigeria, which is very much hustle, you know, boom, 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 right? I needed the balance of Australia to come in to make me the, the, the balanced person I am today. Because you're now going to a new society who prioritizes happiness over wealth, right? Because it's a really flat society, right? They don't have the same issues of extreme wealth, extreme poverty. Actually, in Australia, you have the tall puppy syndrome. It's like I'd never seen a country where people didn't even want to stand out, right? Which was completely opposite to the indoctrination I had. People didn't want to go to university. They were like, why would I do something that stupid, go and acquire debts and whatever? Girls didn't even want to date guys who had corporate jobs. They wanted to date the tradies, right? Those were the hot guys out in Australia, right? And so um, it was a very good kind of like difference for me to come in and absorb a very happy culture, very simple culture. The Australian way of life is a phenomenal way of life, almost unmatched with any other country I've been to in the world. And that's why I love Australia and you always have a special place. I would love to see it become a bit more balanced and accepting so people don't have to go through that much trauma when you come in. But I think the way Australian way of life is, and literally I've been to a lot of countries, is definitely one of the best around the world. And I hope they can retain that joy for as long as they can and it doesn't get corrupt and becomes like, uh, like most other countries are. So how long were you here for, just for context? Over a decade. Yeah, so not not it's not we're not talking about one or two years. We're talking about a substantial amount of time. Australia was my most formative year. Like I had my childhood teenage years in Nigeria and then I moved to Australia. I left Australia at 31. So I was already everything I am when I when I left Australia. That's why I call my adopted country it remains a very, very important one. And the friends I made there were the purest, you know, when life was a bit simpler and uncomplicated. And, you know, like I said, you get all the naive comments, but they're naive. And at a point, it made me laugh. Yeah, wow. So have you found, because after Australia, you went to America, have you found cultural differences between Australia and America? Oh, chalk and cheese. <laughs> Like literally widely opposite. I always tell Americans, I'm like, you guys don't realize how intense you are, do you? You're extremely intense, right? <laughs> like America is very, <laughs> it's extremely intense. Like, you know, you know, even like think about even language. Australians will go like, it's all right. Brit will tell you 
it's not half bad. So pessimism is the is the way of life. And then Americans, it's fantastic. It's excellent. You know, a huge culture difference. Uh, you know, here is all about money rules. Everything here is the most important commodity in America that it drives me mad to the point that politicians don't even care about the, the people that they're there to serve because they don't serve the people. They serve power and they serve money. So I think... Um, one of the big cultural shifts for me personally was just moving into a real capitalist society. America is the, it's hard to explain this. Literally the American dream is about getting the beautiful house and the car. You think about that. You think about the Australian dream? No, it's about happiness, a calm lifestyle, you know? You get a UTI, you get a boat, and you go to the beach, you know? That's the Australian lifestyle and the Australian dream kind of thing in terms of having a good quality of life. Whereas here, the, um, um, the American dream is built on capital and it's an extremely capitalist kind of society. So, so that in itself is different in terms of the intensity. Uh, but then I do love other parts of America. I love the, the, I love the pace in America. Um, I love the, the nightlife in America is pretty damn good. You know, I wish everything didn't close by two o'clock in LA, but the nightlife is really good. Um, um, you know, so, so I, I love the California lifestyle cause it's very similar to Australia in a way, but just a bit more intense. Um, so I, I love a lot about, American and even getting to know American people, even that intensity, I'm starting to really like it too, because it's it's a bit different. So, uh, so you know, it's chalk and cheese. Like in terms of society, there is nothing that is the same or similar between Australia and America. So talking about the capitalist structure in the States, the downside of that, of course, is that that capitalist structure has been built for essentially for white people. And you know, if you're not white, you are in many ways disenfranchised from that system. So you're shopping for makeup. And I imagine that like me, like so many other women, you're out there shopping for makeup and it's very hard to find colours that match you. There'll be a lot of people listening who would have never been through that experience. Can you talk us through that? Because in many ways that led you to found your own cosmetics company and I think that's a really important factor because then you spend a lot of time in your interviews also talking about how for decades we have, the consumer market has really been saturated with products for white women and white men. And what you're trying to do is turn that around. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Look, I think for me, you know, a lot of people don't understand what it feels like to, when you're a person of color, you know, you take my experience in Australia you understand very clearly you're different. Nobody's hiding it from you that you're different, but not different good, you're different bad, right? Um, so that's in your face. If you keep your name, you don't get jobs because recruiters can't be bothered pronouncing your name and they assume you can't speak English, so you're not going to get a job. So from a job perspective, you're disadvantaged. So you said earlier you changed your name. Yeah, exactly, because recruiters will not pick up your CV and, and these studies have been done over and over again and every time is the same results, that if you have an ethnic-sounding name, literally they've taken, there was this research even done in America that, to be honest, I even find with, with names and ethnic names, it's actually better here than in Australia, that is extremely, extremely Anglo-Saxon. But here in America, they even took that and took the exact same CV, exact same CV, nothing was different except the people's names. All of the CVs with ethnic names had 50% less chances of getting called back. There was no difference in the CV, just the names, right? So, so this is something that happens. So as a professional and you're a person of color, these are the choices you're making. You're literally giving up your identity to actually go, because I want to fit in, I want to get the job and I need to survive, right? And I make this point to say, so many important touch points of your life, your race comes into play. The one place that race should not matter is now I finally made the money, I need to spend it, right? So imagine 
you were marginalized to make the money. And then now you have it. And the person is telling you, I don't want your money. Quite literally, you're coming in. Beauty should be an escape for us all, right? That's what it is, an expression we should all escape. And now you're standing there. And this was the moment that for me, I was on a counter in Australia and I was working for a beauty brand at the time. And I used to always go and try and be present on the counter from time to time so I can be engaged with the customer. And I was standing there and I, this group of young girls came in and they were multicultural, you know, black girl and her friends. And they were all playing with the product. They loved it. I demonstrated the product to them and they were like, we'll all have it as you do when you're young. And I had to stop and say, no, you can't have, use this product. And she asked me why. And that was the moment that made me know I was going to leave and go start up my own business. Because in that second, I had no words to tell her. I was like, what do I tell this girl? You know, if I tell her because we don't make stuff for people like you. <laughs> That was the that was the simple answer. And I was like her, right? Um, so I was sitting there going like, whatever I say to this girl is really going to change the course of her life because this is probably not the only place she's faced discrimination at, at, as a teenager already based on the color of her skin. And now I'm going to add that into this conversation and tell her, no, it wasn't made for you, right? Because I had said to her, oh, because it doesn't look good on our skin. And she said, why? Isn't there a version that looks good on us? Uh, you know, and I knew where this conversation was going to. So it's a big deal because this shapes your idea of worth, because when everywhere you go to, you're being turned down, you're being rejected, including in places that literally you're supposed to be able to buy your way into like a damn lipstick. And then it's still not you're not allowed in here. So that really damages a person just beyond because people are like, but it's just a lipstick. No. It's life. It's just understanding that I am so unwanted, right? I am just so unwanted in everything. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, so I think for me, that's the part that people don't see when we talk about making products available for everybody, because at least we should have one place as we continue to try and fix the world where everybody can feel human. Every woman and every man has the right to feel beautiful, right? Whether it's organically in themselves or, hey, like for me, I call beauty sometimes my war paint. I need to go into this meeting. I'm not feeling myself but I need that red lipstick. I should be able to walk out and buy a red lipstick that works for my skin tone and not a red lipstick that's going to make me look crazy because for the longest time I couldn't wear red lipsticks because it's the wrong red. It didn't have enough blue in it, right? And so it's much bigger than just not having shades. And I remember I brought all my makeup I used to use when I was in Australia, right? All my shades. And it was hilarious because like some of the things I'm like, how did I use that? Like it's a different human being, but that was the darkest they had available at the time. And then even America, who at the time was hailed to be better because they had a much bigger population of people of color, um, it still was a challenge. And that's why this work is so important so that wherever a person is around the world, they can feel included. They don't have to go to the, you know, we had to go to like the dirty, dingy kind of specialist shops to go find something that has expired three years ago. But that's as good as you're going to get it to get any beauty product. And that's why this is so important, because it goes beyond just not finding a lipstick or a foundation. It goes to rock people's core of their identity, of their self-worth. And that is super important and one that we have to defend for all. Sharon, when I found out that I was going to be talking to you, I was so excited because recently I went into a department store. I had a spare hour in meetings, so thought I'd go in and look at foundations, found one that I really liked exactly the same thing, said I'd take it. And the person who was behind the counter was young. She was in her 20s and she was very different complexion to me. And she turned around, she said, oh no, this is not made for you. She said, this is made for people with fair skin. And I was a bit shocked. And I said to her, I said, do you understand that what you've just said is quite racist? And she didn't. She apologised. Anyway, I came home and I never write complaint letters, but I decided to write one. I wrote one to the department store and the brand got lots of apologies and then got a gift bag in the mail. 
And the gift bag was full of products for somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes and fair skin. So then I rang them again and I said, guys, you've just made this worse. And their response was, no, we did the right thing because actually if we'd waited and gotten products for you, then it would have taken weeks and weeks. So we just got what we had and sent it to you. And so you got something. You should be grateful. Well, that bag is still sitting downstairs in my kitchen. I don't know what to do with it. So it's still happening. It's still happening today. But that is the reality. That's the reality because everybody goes like, oh, the world will come a long way. I'm like, we have a long way to go because, you know, it's crazy to think. But this is the reality. Things are made. And it's like I say, it's a very Anglo kind of centric. I mean, imagine even walking in and going, hey, I need a makeup service. And the person staring at you like you're an alien who just dropped off the face of the planet. Or you come out and you look really scary because it's so white against your skin. It doesn't work. Exactly. You look mad. You know, I remember sitting down (laughs) even when I was uh, working in beauty in Australia. And I remember having this masterclass and this person was showing how to get this highlighted contour sculpted look. And when they finished, I had to step on the stage and tell people just FYI, everything you've been shown here, you have to reverse it if you're a deeper skin. Like, you know, so I literally pointed everyone in the room, you, 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 you who's seen all of this, it dis- disregard all of this information because you're going to look crazy if you do this, right? Um, but it's crazy. Like, even when you look at both in Australia, England, and America, where you go to makeup school, they don't teach you. You literally get qualified and certified as a makeup artist without being taught about skin of color. Because, well, why do we matter? Why does it, why does it matter, right? If you go to become a hairdresser, you get certified without learning how to do textured hair, right? And, and these are crazy. It doesn't cost much to teach people these things whilst you're teaching them in school, right? So now you have mainstream makeup artists and mainstream hairdressers who can only do hair, hair and makeup for white people. And then you have to have now a cohort of ethnic <laughs> makeup artists and hairdressers. And now the challenge is if, like even here in America, if you're a black makeup artist, you get relegated that you can only do black skin. That's all you're going to be doing. If you happen to be a white makeup artist and you can also do makeup for black skin, you also get relegated into an ethnic makeup artist, right? Um, if you even think about how the beauty aisles work, right? Remember when the beauty aisle used to have an ethnic aisle, right? So you think about it. And most of these brands that classified as ethnic were actually inclusive brands that created for everybody. So if you even look at the standard of the beauty hall today, if you're a brand and you only created for white people, you're mainstream. If you're a brand and you cater for everybody, like my brand keeps getting called, oh, my beauty is called ethnic all the time. And we have 51 shades of foundation. We cater to everybody. Um, all the undertones, everything covered. But we are considered an ethnic brand because we're inclusive. And now they call it with a fancy term, multicultural beauty. And I'm like, there should be no multicultural beauty. The world is multicultural. That should be beauty. And instead, let's have monocultural beauty, which means you're a beauty company that caters to only one culture or one demographic. So we shouldn't be labeling the people who are doing the right thing and creating a category for them and a smaller table for them. No, this should be mainstream. And what should be a specialty is if you choose, if I'm a black woman and I choose, I'm only going to make for black people. There's nothing wrong in that. I become a monocultural beauty brand. If Chanel decides the only women that matter to us are blonde hair, blue eye women, they become a monocultural beauty brand instead of creating this terminology that gets used so much to my to my made which is multicultural beauty yeah it's crazy well we should we we should absolutely be calling out those beauty brands that don't cater to everybody exactly and they should be the one in the special section right 
not the reverse, but they're the ones who are big places of the beauty hall. So ask me what impression you're giving to a child, right? So when a young child walks into that hall, what are you teaching them? Uh, when I talk about that racism is woven so deep into the fabric of all our societies, it's not funny because a lot of people think to be racist, your parents have to sit you down and say, hate the Chinese, hate the black people and whatever. They don't need to teach you that. It is absorbed in all the things you see around you. Where you walk into a beauty hall and this is what's called a mainstream brand, it's told you that the world only exists for people who look like that, right? You didn't need any other education, right? And then that continues to touch you everywhere you go in the campaigns you see, and what's considered beautiful and who, who are people's heroes in the people who are in the seats of power and all of these things. That's what really is your is the education that is absorbed into you, which is the most dangerous kind of education. The easiest kind of education to undo is when you actually thought when somebody sits and teaches you something, you can remember that education and that lesson and you can remove it. When something is metabolized into you, it goes into your subconscious which means that you don't even think about it. It just happens, which is majority of a human action happens by default is why we all, a lot of people who have bad parents who go, I don't want to be that parent, end up being that parent because at the end of the day, that's all you know. So that's what your body is defaulting to every time you're making decisions, right? And that's fact. And that's why racism is such a big problem because in all of the way institutions have been set, which are all of these institutions were set in the last 400 years, right? In terms of the ecosystem of the world. And that's why we have the problems because everywhere a child turns around, regardless of whether you're white, black, Asian or whatever, you are learning the same lesson. You're either learning that I'm superior or you're learning that this world is not for you. And if you want acceptance into this world, you have to pay a really high price. It's why conversations like this are so important, because every time your photo goes out or my photos, you know, attached to one of these podcasts, the only reason I do it is because I hope that a little girl's looking at it or a young woman's looking at it and it becomes normalised. So she's seeing herself reflected and she knows then she can do it. You've talked about you were at PepsiCo for a while and you were there when Indra Nui was the CEO. Indra Nui, yes, my favourite woman. And you talked about how you knew you could do it. You knew you could set up um, Oh My Beauty because you'd seen it done. You'd seen yourself reflected in this leadership. How important was that? Very important, right? Because once again, like I said, growing up, there were not many heroes to look up to, right? Um, especially when you're a black woman. Um, because the only heroes you see are entertainers, right? Which was not surprising. I wanted to go be a singer because that's where you see success. Entertainers, athletes, that's where you see success. So you really don't see a world that actually shows you that you can do other things. The only person who really was there at the time and was a shining light was Indra Nui. So even though she wasn't a black woman, she was a woman of color. And I could see her and why I related to her story even more than, I mean, Ursula Burns, I love her and everything that she did. And she's always going to be an icon, you know, one of the first black woman to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But with Indra, she was an immigrant. And that was very consoling to me to see a woman who wasn't born in America. She was born in India, raised in India, studied in India, was able to come into PepsiCo and rise all the way to the top. And she was the first female CEO of PepsiCo. And of course, it goes without saying I'm a person of color. Um, but it was lovely to see that because I knew that if she could, I could, right? Because it is possible. And that in itself kept me going, especially when my early career, I was having all the challenges, being discriminated against, being treated like garbage. You sort of knew that you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel because, you know, all I learned from it, because I would read all her interviews and injury was always work harder, you know, work hard to the point nobody can dispute your work. And that was a pathway I took in terms of the way to survive here 
is I'm not going to get any favors because nobody's just going to by default connect with you, right? We know even in organizations, 77% of people will pick a successor of their own race and gender. It's even the reason why women struggle to get up there because you don't you have You pick to, somebody who looks like you. Who looks like you, exactly. It's a natural human instinct to go, you remind me of a younger me. Now, when you see a black-ass young girl from Nigeria, how will I ever remind your young version of you? Our experiences are so different. And so what indirect, what I learned from her was just, Work hard so that your work is undisputed. They're going to have you because they need you, right? And it's going to trump everything. And that was what I did. And, you know, that was the blueprint I followed. But that's also why I do what I do, because I think that should not be the standard. Um, you know, it's what Indra had to do. It's what I had to do. But it's not what the next generation should have to do, right? They should have the right to. It's okay to be average and be a person of color. You don't always have to be spectacular and be one of the 1%. And sometimes I say this and it sounds controversial. And I'm like, every society has people doing different things. The burden should not be on us that to be successful in corporate life, I have to work an 18-hour day when my colleagues are working eight-hour days. We should have a place where we can all work eight hours and whoever's a star is a star, right? Uh, regardless of your race. So I literally took Indra's handbook and that's why I'm here because she was right. She she knew this. She lived through it. And that's why I fight every day to make sure that other people don't have to use that handbook because that handbook is completely unfair and it comes at a great price. And I love how open she, she is when she talks about her personal life, her children, you know, being absent, you know, from some of the school plays, how she had to essentially make the whole PepsiCo babysitters for her kids and everything as she was raising a family at the same time. And I love that she proudly says you can't have it all, right? Um, and you can't have it all when you have to do what we're doing. But we have to now create a pathway for a new generation. Nobody can have it all, but to be able to have it in balanced regardless of the color of their skin and so I love her I was joking about like other people who see Beyonce and cry the day I ever meet that woman I'm gonna be like you know like cry crying like snort coming out of my nose kind of thing because she was such an icon and her strength and her her tenacity her you know some people called her aggressive and I loved it I was like of course it was a guy he's assertive it was a woman she's aggressive right I love the tenacity she tackled things with and she was my biggest inspiration and what kept me going through my corporate life. I love that. I love that. Well, so now tell us about the beauty brand that you set up, Uoma Beauty, and can women in Australia buy it? So, I mean, right now they have to buy off my website. Um, so I left uh, Australia in 2017 and left corporates behind at the same time, because at the time I knew that I wanted to go do something that was about purpose, right? I knew that I had given away so much of myself to become this successful person. And alas, of course, I was 30. I had the executive job. I had the multi-million dollar home. I had the beautiful, you know, car. You know, I had just got married. Life was great. And so my mom was like, oh, what's next? And everybody expected to be like, babies, you know, <laughs> my mom had been waiting. She's like, you were always doing a project, studying this, that. Now it's time for me to have grandkids. Because if you come, if you come from an ethnic background, that's always a question. When are you getting married? And then when are you having babies? And then I discovered it was when are you having your second one? Oh, of course. Exactly. But here it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop, right? So unfortunately, her question got the wrong answer, which was, yeah, I'm going to go reclaim myself, right? Um, um, in terms of in my mind, I never said it to her. I lied to her for the longest time. Even when I left, I told her I'm leaving, but I haven't had a holiday in a while. I've been working for over a decade with no break and everybody knew I was a workhorse. When I was in corporate, I, I worked 
crazy hard. I never took time off. I barely ever had a sick day. Like when I left my last company, it was crazy because I had to go have surgery. So I was able to use a lot of my accrued sick leave and they couldn't believe how much sick leave I had accrued because I never took a day off. I never took a sick day. And so uh, it was crazy. So when I left, I told my mom, I was like, I just need time off work. You know, I think every 10 years, everybody should do a six month sabbatical. So she was like, that's great. Cause in her mind, more time to focus on having babies. Good. We like this. You know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm moving to London. She's thinking, yes, at least you're not 30 hours away from me anymore. You know, I can come look after the kids, smart move. So she is sitting there like, ha, 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 there's babies. I'm sure her hand, she started rocking it, waiting for the imaginary baby to land only to find out, no, I was quitting my job to go set up a business. And, um, at the time, I didn't really care what it was going to be. I just knew that personally for me, it was I had to go through my own therapy, which was reclaiming myself, my heritage, my culture. Because like I said, I had to assimilate to become Australian, right? Um, and that's great. And I got a lot from that. But I'm also African and I cannot kill that part of me and I should not have to kill that part of me. It is possible to be both, right? I think we live in a world of either or. And we have to get into a world of both and. I and, be, and celebrate who you are. Exactly. I can be both Australian and Nigerian, right? And sometimes it's like you're either with us or against us. You know, a lot of times when I talk about race, people go like, you hate white people. I'm like, are you insane? Like, it's okay to be pro-black without being anti-white. Being pro-something does not mean being anti. And that was really the journey I had to go through, to go back and discover myself. I never had my natural hair. This is the first time I've had my natural hair, right? I'm 34 years old. I only started my natural hair journey last year. It was the first time as a human being, I put my hand in my scalp and I was touching my hair as it grew out of my head, because from when I was two, my hair has been relaxed and straightened and it was straightened the entire time. So all of these things I had to go, I had to start asking questions about myself and in my journey and my culture. And I realized my culture was all lost and I had to go to museums to start reading more. But every time I did, I felt more empowered and I felt more beautiful. I felt proud. I used to be embarrassed to be African and Nigerian. I started flying that flag so big. I started feeling my ancestors through me, right? And, and really reconnecting with them in a strong way. And so for Oma Beauty, that was what I wanted to do there. I just wanted to create this space where everybody was proud to be themselves, right? Uh, I created and I called an Afropolitan brand because I'm like, you know, for me, this was me reclaiming my culture. And I hope in doing that, I inspire people, regardless of what you look like, where you're from around the world. On some level, many of us know what it feels like to be left out. Even if you're a white woman, you understand there was a time where you had to be white, blonde, blue eyes to be relevant. If you happen to be brunette, it was like, goodbye, come another year, right? Um, you know, so a lot of people, people based on their size, people based on their sexual orientation, based on just how they behave, you're too loud, you're too modest, you know? Um, and so I just wanted to create this beautiful rebellion and it was a rebellion of love. It was an uprising to actually go, we determine our worth. We determine our beauty. Beauty starts the moment you choose to be yourself, not when somebody else chooses that you're beautiful. Because once again, I was the ugly duckling in school and the worst person. And now people, you're so beautiful. And I'm like, I don't really care about it because it never meant anything to me because of those formative experiences of being told you're ugly. I rejected that and got into my own beauty because I felt I was beautiful. So even when the world came into the consensus that you're beautiful, I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like you, you know, whatever. Right. And so I think, um, that's the beauty there. And that's what Oma Beauty is all about. It's really a movement. It's a self-loving movement. Um, the beauty product is a souvenir of the experience we have there. It's like going to a music concert, right? The music binds us and that's what brings us together. But the shared culture and values is why we're there. That's why you can go to music concerts sometimes and make a friend there. Because you just know, well, if you love Beyonce, we, we're probably the same person. You're like, okay, okay, like we're good, right? You know, so that's how I see Oma Beauty. And because of what we stand for, that's why I'm 
obsessive about product, right? That's why our products keep winning awards because like I said, the lesson I learned as a person of color is you have to be the best at everything. You, you don't have any margin of error because if you give any reason for you to be unselected, you will always be unselected. And that's the attitude I bring to running the company. Like in product formulation, I'm crazy. I'm obsessive. I'm in the lab. I tried lipstick colors to get the perfect color until my capillaries broke on my lips. Literally, I have images of my lips bleeding whilst making these lipstick shades to perfect them. So I am obsessive almost to the point of being a psychotic maniac sometimes in, in when it comes to product formula quality, because I do in a way feel like a lot of what I represent represents the marginalized in so many ways. And I cannot let them down. I take that very seriously. So every time we come out and we score a win against Mac or Chanel, every time they run into my website to buy my products to replicate them, I feel a lot of win, not for myself, but for everybody who's been told we can't. Everybody who's been told that we're not good enough. All of us rejects. I'm going, y'all, you know, look at y'all coming to see how we do what we do. And so that's that's really at the foundation of Oma Beauty. So for me, it's people come in there. The message is beautiful. And that's what's fueled our crazy growth. We're only two years old and it's crazy um, the size of our company in two years. Uh, but that's because the world was ready for this revolution. The world wants to be part of this revolution because I feel, and I'm a big believer, and this is what propels me to continue doing what I do. There are more good people in the world than they are bad people. The bad people just speak a lot louder than the good people. And so I hope in what I do, I inspire all the good people to do what in Nigeria we call sorosuke, which means speak louder. Like, you know, because that's all we need to do. We all, we just need to speak louder and drown the evil. And then we'll have a better world than we have today. How many of us have felt like we were on the outside looking in? Not smart enough, not attractive enough, and generally not enough to conform to everyone else's ideal of who we should be. Sharon Shooter, the CEO of Omar Beauty, took a childhood of feeling like that and translated it into a gift. It was precisely those feelings that led her to create a brand that she describes as being for misfits. A brand where we can all take our authentic selves to the counter and feel good about who we actually are and who we want to be. I love Sharon's purpose in wanting to make the journey better for people who are following in her footsteps so that they don't have to work as hard to succeed. I hope that all of us listening today feel empowered by her message and know that we are all enough. The Leadership Lessons podcast is produced by the wonderful Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. I hope you've enjoyed this session today and I look forward to being with you again next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.